Welcome to Be The Difference, stories of everyday people who are being the difference in the lives of others. Be The Difference is presented by Back to Back Ministries, who exist to be a voice for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. And I'm Sammy Matthews, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Cox. Oh, one of our favorites on this one, Sammy. So on this episode, we got to interview our friend and our boss, Beth Guckenberger. But it was a little bit different spin because she has a couple different hats that she wears. She is the co-executive director of Back to Back Ministries, and she is an author and speaker. So today we wanted to talk to Beth about her journey to be the difference as an author and as a speaker. And she's authored at this point 10, soon to be 11, and then 12 books in the next year. And we talked to her about that journey, why she started writing it all, and what her experience has been. There are a few things that we want you to listen for in this episode. The first thing that we're going to ask you to listen for is uh, the story around a crown. You're going to Mm -hmm. want to dive in a little deeper on that because it's a real powerful story. The second is we want you to listen for Beth's uh, writing process. It's a little bit unique but I love it from the side of how it holds other stories, and you're gonna listen for that. And then last, we want you to listen for some real specifics. We're gonna ask you to listen for the names of Anne Lamont, Ray Vanderlaan, Moses, (laughs) and Todd Guckenberger. We want you to listen to those names because when Beth brings those names in, there's gonna be something powerful that happens around her own story because of the influence that these names have in her life. So here we go, our conversation with Beth Guckenberger, the author. Beth, there are many facets to your life and I'm really intrigued about the journey that you've taken as a writer and storyteller because story holds us together in a lot of ways. When you think back to young Beth growing up, do you have a storyteller or an author that stood out to you? One thing I remember is that um, I now know the Bible is about 80% story. So when I first fell in love with Jesus, I fell in love with the stories that came with the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And those stories were told to me by my parents. My mom told me stories in private settings. She told me stories, you know, at bedtime or at a kitchen table with my brother or in a car. Um, She'd tell me stories about her life or about God's life or Um, even about my life. My dad used to tell stories in more public settings. I can remember people standing around him and being little and realizing that they've laughed at something he's been sharing or that he held the attention Mm -hmm. of several people. And I think the combination of the way my mom was intentional about telling story with detail and the way my dad understood how to work a crowd, those kind of blended together into the to the gift set that I have today. What were your favorite kinds of stories? Oh, I loved, I loved, I loved missionary stories. Um, we, my family, supported some missionaries that would come to our house. I realize now, on their annual tour home from whatever country they were in, and I would listen to stories about countries I couldn't find on a map, but I knew they were far away, and I knew that the stories that they were telling were exciting, even though I couldn't, even as a young girl, didn't know what was so exciting about them, but I could feel. I liked overcomer stories. I love those underdog stories. And I love stories of ordinary people. Um, I, I, I wasn't gravitating towards superhero stories. I liked the kind of everyday person who there was more to them than what you saw with your eye. What made the shift happen for you? And even as you expressed about your dad of he knew how to captivate a crowd. He knew how to tell the story and maybe even hold the story in public to what I think is somewhat of a different piece of that art that is then to put that to paper and be able to 
capture a crowd through words on a page seems to take a little bit of a different skill set than like the oration of a word. When did that come alive for you? Yeah, definitely. I was a, I was speaking stories a long time before I was writing them. That's how I learned how to weave personal story into biblical story, read an audience, use humor, figure out where it resonates, move people. All of that I learned kind of live. In fact, I was telling someone the other day, the first some of the first sermons I ever remember delivering, uh, my Mexican pastor in Mexico asked if if there's anyone in the audience who would be willing to translate a sermon into English. And I was like, sure, I will. But uh, I didn't speak Spanish as well as I thought he did. Mm. I did. And the way this audio was set up on the stage that first time, he was talking and I couldn't really hear him that well. And he was talking fast and passionately as a pastor. And so, but, and then there was a pause and it was my turn to go. And so I knew we were in the book of James and I knew how I felt about the book of James. So I just started talking about the book of James and, and then he would talk some and then I'd continue on about what I was doing. And I had a minute to catch my thoughts while he was talking in Spanish. And I wasn't exactly translating his message, but I, 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 when that little moment was over, I felt really alive mm-hmm. and I can remember feeling, and he noticed it too, to his credit, he said, how about next time? You write a message in English, and I'll translate it into Spanish. He, he could tell that there was something there. Mm-hmm. And so we had had some um, folks visit us in Mexico who heard me tell my stories, and they encouraged me to write them down. They're from a publishing company I actually later would publish with called Thomas mm-hmm. Nelson. But And I was afraid. When, mm-hmm. when they told me to write them down, I was like, I, I couldn't put my finger on it first why I was so afraid, but they came three consecutive years. All three years asked me to consider um, writing a book, and all three years I told them no. Mm. And the third year, I was processing after they had left with a friend of Todd's and mine. And he was like, I don't know why you wouldn't do this. And I was like, "Eh." I, I had all these kind of excuses I had fumbled around with. And then I waved my hand around the campus where we were sitting at the time in Mexico, and there were lots of staff kind of around doing things. And I said, why do I get to tell the story? They all have fabulous stories, too. Mm-hmm. Why do I? Why, why should I tell my stories? And he said, well, because they, they asked you to tell your stories. And then I said, nobody wants to see that crown up on my head. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I had this instant flashback <laughs> to when I was a high school senior. It's a long story, but my senior year in high school, I cheered one season, one year of my whole childhood life, but I cheered for the football season of my senior year. And homecoming weekend, um, I was on the homecoming court. So we left our cheerleading posts, went and changed into these giant dresses, went and rode in the back of cars. At halftime, they announced that I was the homecoming queen. They put a crown in my hair, but this is 1990. So if anybody remembers what our hair looked like in 1990, it was permed, it was hairsprayed, and it was like eight inches tall. It was big. So <laughs> that crown just sat in that bee's nest of a hair. Nobody could see it. I After that event was over, I ran up into the locker room to change out of my dress and put my cheerleading outfit back on. And I was running late and wanted to be there at the start of the second half. And I I looked in the mirror and I didn't even see the crown because it was buried underneath all those curls. And I ran down to the field and on my way down, I ran into a girl that I now as an adult recognize that she had a friend who was also up for homecoming queen and didn't get it. And But she just said to me, get that off your head. Nobody wants to see that crown up there. Mm. And I was, I felt shame and I ripped that thing off my head and threw it in my backpack. And I had forgotten about that moment until that came out of my mouth in 2007. And which was, you know, 17 years later or whatever. And 
when when my friend who was listening to me said, what are you talking about? I said, oh, my gosh, I am about to say no to this because of her. Like, why am I saying no to this because of that? And I realized that somewhere the enemy had set up this little soft spot in my brain that said, don't stand out too much and don't do it at the expense of your peer relationships. Mm-hmm. They, they may not like it. And once I started to deconstruct that lie, then the calling inside of me to write was able to come forward. I think it's so interesting how often our past is what is really speaking in our present, and we don't even realize it, and we're not conscious or aware, but we let the stories of our past tell the story of our present. So you ended up taking the step and doing it, writing the book. What surprised you about the process? Oh, that first book, Reckless Faith. I mean... The funny part about that book is I knew nothing. I had no agent. I had no writing coach, no editor, no nothing. I just let that thing live on my hard drive. And 10 days before it was due to a company called Zondervan, who um, I was in a relationship with then, uh, I was taking that. I decided to fast the last 10 days for the deadline. And I was taking that laptop with me everywhere, like the grocery store, my kids' soccer games, like everywhere. And I was at Evan's soccer practice, and um, I could tell he couldn't see where I was parked in the parking lot. So I, after practice, he was looking around for me. So I jumped out of my car. I had been riding during that practice. And I just, I was probably out of the car about a minute or two, yelling to him through the fence, hey, buddy, I'm over here. When I turned around to get back in my car, someone had smashed the window and stolen my laptop out oh, of the car. Wow. They had been watching that whole, they had been watching me um, use it during practice. And I immediately jumped on top of the Suburban to see if I could see someone running away. Later, when the police interviewed people, did you see anything unusual? They were like, yeah, this blonde lady's on top <laughs> of her car. car. <laughs> Before that. <laughs> but I, call, I, I was so naive, I called Zondervan and told them, hey, you know what? I don't, I'm not going to be able to do a book for you. I, I didn't even have time to write this in the first place. I definitely don't have time to write it again. Thank you so much for the opportunity, but um, it's not going to happen. And they reminded me I was contractually obligated to complete the manuscript. They would give me an extension, but I needed to get that to them. So that weekend, Todd checked me into a hotel so I could have some uninterrupted time. And I remember drafting the table of contents just from my memory of what it had been before and sobbing through it like, mm. I cannot believe I have to do this again. It was all gone. Mm-hmm. And, oh, gosh, I can. what I remember most is that I just started praying to the Lord, and he was like, Beth, the the last time you were so worried about what you were supposed to go teach the world, don't worry about what you're supposed to teach the world. Just tell them what I've taught you. And that was a far easier assignment mm. to me. Mm-hmm. I got I could sit down and easily start writing the things the Lord had taught me. So in that little window, I had been telling people before that moment, you know, I mean, the enemy took it. There's no doubt about it. Like, I had this great work. It was going to go out into the world, and the enemy took it. After that moment, I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's a verse in John around 15 that says, if a branch is not going to bear fruit, it gets cut off. I'm like, I bet an angel, like, took that thing and flew away with it because <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what God had. And so I think what most surprised me, that's a long way to answer your question, Sammy, but that the things that God had taught me, it was a much more personal book at that point would resonate with anyone else. And it's, it changed the way I communicated from then on out. Mm. Even when I get on a stage, when I'm in a one-on-one conversation, I don't think like, I have to, I have something I need to teach you. It's more like, I'm, I can just testify to what God's done in my life, and I pray something in that means something to you. In this season of life, is there a story from that first book of Reckless Faith that feels like there's there's a highlighter now, or is there one that's been just a consistent thread that has always stood out to you from that first writing experience? Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, probably two. One is just the back-to-back origin story and mm-hmm. Todd and I on that trip and and recognizing uh, there was a need somewhere in the world and God might be asking us to meet it. Different people I've met over my lifetime now have their own version of that, that moment when suddenly circumstances that they were aware of before became crystal clear and they were passionate about Mm -hmm. and they were supposed to do something. Like that whole like defining moment, I'm so glad I captured that down on paper. It's given me a good catalyst to talk to people about their defining moments. And it's been something I've been able to revisit on all the days that, well, what we do is really hard. Mm -hmm. How did this start and how do I believe I was asked into it? But the other piece of it was the adoption and Mm -hmm. articulating that we began very early building an unconventional family and just kind of what that looked like in real time for us. And even though, I mean, Evan, we adopted 24 years ago. Today, people adopt all the time, even if their bodies work in all the right ways. But 24 years ago, really the only people yeah. that were adopting so different. were folks who, who were struggling with infertility. So the fact that I was pregnant at the same time we were executing the adoption was really, I now realize, made us very strange. And so just to be able to put words to that and then for those words to still resonate with people, that that's really meaningful to me. And you didn't just write the one book and and stop there. You you had a full-time job, have a full-time job as co-executive director of a global orphan care organization, and you took on the role of author. Why keep writing books? I think that when when reckless when I started to hear from people after um, Reckless Faith, and I, like I was quick to say, my Reckless Faith caused me to go into an orphanage. Your Reckless Faith may cause you to go into a courtroom or across the street or a classroom or to your neighbor or whatever. When I started to hear that people like were holding on to that concept and that it was motivating them to do what God has asked them to do in their corners of the world, and I never – those people had never come on a mission trip, and I would never traveled to their city to speak. We had no normal reason to interact. I realized writing is a tool. And mm-hmm. I wanted the tool in the tool belt. I could tell more people about back to back. I could. There was like power in, in, in story. And so, um, yeah, I. It's kind of. I mean, I'm not a marathoner, but I hear once you run one, you can run more than one. Like you kind of get in that kind of shape, and then you just want to keep doing it. So, I, I always have about four books going on my hard drive at any given moment. This today's no exception. There's about four. There's four seeds going on in there. So, yeah, it's just, just the way God made me. I think there are basic pillars in a writing process that stay the same, and we won't necessarily hit on those. But for you specifically in your writing process, I know at times community is a real part of that. What are some of the highlights of your own writing process that when you get to that place, you're like, oh, I'm here. I love this part. <laughs> yeah. I love the beginning. I remember um, I had a, a radio show on XM a number of years ago, and I was interviewing an author named Anne Lamott. And she's an author I had admired before. And so I said to her, hey, Anne, like, forget who cares about the listening audience. I got a question for you. I'm a writer. What advice do you have for me? You're much farther down this path than I am. And she said, oh, Beth, that's easy. Just write something you would be delighted to stumble upon. And that was a good word that landed mm. at the right moment. Like, that idea that sometimes I, it stopped me from ever having the tendency to write like the seven steps to a happy home or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. like it's nothing that we do is easy. Marriage isn't easy. Parenting isn't easy. Ministry is not easy. Walking with Jesus isn't easy. 
I want to read somebody talking about vulnerably and transparently. What does that look like? Like literally, what does that look like? What does victory look like? What does failure look like? What does growth look like? What does encouragement like? What does that look like? So I like the beginning part of it when you're like, what would I be? What kind of message would I be delighted to stumble upon? And then some authors, I've 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 met them before. I've heard them before. They they write chapter one and then they write chapter two and then they write chapter three and they write until they've exhausted their message and then mm. they're good. I don't write that way. I, I start at the beginning. What would I be delighted to stumble upon? And then I quickly go to the end. Like I know hmm. most re- readers don't actually get to the last page, but I imagine they're all at the end. Like what do I want to leave them with the impression of? And then I kind of architect the middle of it, which means – I write chapter 10 and then chapter 3 and then chapter 17 mm. and then chapter 4. Then, like I kind of bounce all over the place. Um, I think that's unique, but it has allowed me to write in really short increments. I, I only need about 20 minutes to do a little bit of writing, um, and that, that kind of helps. Uh, it, it, fits, it, it allows writing to fit into an already really busy lifestyle. Yeah, and, you, and you have a lot of your writings where you're interweaving unique stories um, throughout as opposed to like one character that's the hero going throughout. Do you think that that helps being able to bounce around in those chapters because you know you can figure out in your flow yeah. where a, a character and their story fit? Yeah, I think so. Also because I'm I'm writing hopefully in real time. I'm not writing like, you know, once upon a time this happened yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah. I'm writing like Thursday this happened. I know kind of the elements I'm going to need over those chapters to build the thesis. And so when something happens in real time, I think, oh, that would be perfect for this chapter. I'm going to sit down and write this moment, this experience I just had, or this teaching I just understood, or this insight that God just gave me. I'm going to it, – it's going to fit here. That way I can be writing and living in real time and figure out where it goes kind of as I go along. It, yeah, but it's, it's hard. And then I, I think the other piece of the writing process is uh, feedback makes everything better. So as quickly as I can, I'm giving it away to people to say, did you get the feels? Did you, do you understand what I mean by that? Does that make any sense? Do we need a bridge there? Mm. And allowing other people to give me – to be loving critics um, has really, really improved the overall. That's a good word that extends beyond writing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the more you take feedback, the more it integrates into your life. That's a good word. And at this point, you're, what, about 10 books in plus whatever four are partially constructed on your hard drive. What have you learned about yourself in the process? Honestly, uh, this is the first thing that comes to my mind is that I love Jesus. And mm-hmm. I tell him at the beginning about the whole thing, if this exercise is just a, a very elaborate journal, it's okay. Like, I want to process with you the things that you're doing in me. And so let's do that first. And I love you enough to want to learn. I love you enough to do the, the discipline of this work and it's a it's like a sacrifice of praise or whatever. And if at the end we have something that's commercially viable, hallelujah. But if not, it, it, I love him enough to do it. I think that's probably what gets me the courage to start every time. What have you learned about others? I've learned this. My mom told me this. And once she pointed it out, she's right. She said to me one time, Todd's on every page of your book, of your books. And she's right. Pretty much every story, every Certainly every spiritual insight I've had, I've probably practiced on him or processed with him or learned from mm. him. Every story I've had, he's been next to me. And so um, I think what I've learned is that I, I really value the commission. Um, and I, when I put things to paper, I'm usually putting 
the stories of a community of paper, like whether that community is my little marriage or our larger family or my staff family. Like I'm, I'm just putting to, to paper experiences I've had alongside of other people inside. I've gathered alongside or from other people. And that I really – that makes me feel honored to do it versus mm-hmm. like it's a chore to do it. It's like I feel really honored to capture this in a way that um, – I don't know, has last lasts longer. I'm sure that in writing the way that you write, it has opened up the opportunities for, uh, I wouldn't say feedback as much as responses, because you also travel and speak. So you get this opportunity where those who've read your books can actually get access to you and tell you a quote or a statement, or they can send you a message of what stood out to them. What are some of the most encouraging moments that you can think back to of going, yeah, that made it worth it, or I'm glad to have heard that feedback from someone? Oh, there's there's a lot of those. They're always, the common thread is they're really humbling to me because I realize typically the conversation God's been having with someone prior to them interacting with something I've written, I I just am like one more piece of a puzzle God's building in them, and I just— uh, like sometimes, especially when it comes to people who've adopted or fostered children, when I interact with them, they're kind of giving me more credit than really I'm I'm due, but they're associating me with something that brings them great joy, which is parenting children from from um, hard places. And so I, I like in the moment I realized like God had talked to you a long time before I showed up and is continuing to sustain you a long time after you've put my book down. But I'm so grateful to be a little chapter in your story and to testify to the ways in which building our family this way has blessed us. And and uh, I think also the Israel and Hebrew thing surprised me. Like I went to Israel for the first time in 2010 and that experience was, I sometimes have described it as I got my biblical closet organized. I had all the pieces in there. I just, I, d- I hadn't tied it together in mm. the way that I did the first time I was there. At the end of the two weeks, um, I was saying goodbye to the Bible teacher who was guiding us. Uh, his name is Ray Vanderlaan. I-, I was crying so hard, like the way I've seen video footage of people with the Beatles, you know? <laughs> like Todd was like, babe, just back, just back away. Just like, just walk away. He gets it. Like, he's, you're grateful. Like, come on, honey. I, I was, I, it was such a visceral reaction to me. And then I couldn't stop talking about it. I was telling everybody about, mm. you know, insights from the land and Hebrew words. And, and that's, that was 11 years ago and I'm mm. still doing it. So when I meet people who say, I've since gone to Israel or I've since enrolled in a Hebrew study or I've tattooed the word Hanani on my arm or whatever, mm. I get really grateful that that, I know that that's bigger than me, but what captured me, captured me ended up capturing them. I think the last thing that um, is a blessing because it's a it's like a tertiary um, goal, it's not a primary goal or even a secondary goal, is meeting young women who um, didn't have a model for uh, a woman taking authority in scripture yeah. and and sharing what God has taught her in a co-ed setting. There's a lot of uh, women of all ages and men. I mean, men who are like, I, I just, I didn't think that was a thing. Or I've never read a book written by a woman before. Or um, that just happened last week. A, f- a dear friend of mine, he's 70 years old, read Start With Amen. And he said, it's the first book I've read cover to cover written by a woman. And he said, I feel wow. like my life has changed. And that's that's not my primary goal. It's not my secondary yeah. goal. But it's a kind of a fun tertiary goal. Mm-hmm. Like there it is out there. Like 
Yeah. I, I always say, don't give too much credit to the messenger. God talked out of donkeys. Like it, he can talk out of anybody. Yeah. Don't let that get in your way. But it's fun for me to think about maybe I'm leaving some seeds behind for another generation of women who will do something similar. That's good. All of those kind of lead to even like this part of a conversation that we're on the verge of a new book release yeah. uh, called Throw the First Punch. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I want to I listened to an author say recently that when he finds himself in front of a screen writing, he is really writing the thing that he wants to learn about for his own journey and then sharing it with others. When we start this discussion around throw the first punch, is that true for you? Or was there another like community or group that you were identifying of like, this is what I need, or this is what we need, or this is what they need? Yeah, it definitely started with a delighted to stumble upon kind of piece of it because I was I have been experiencing spiritual warfare for as long as I can remember as an yeah. adult. And most of the resources I could put my hands on were either really academic or kind of in the fringes of our faith community. And I wanted like plain spoken, everyday normalization of the idea the enemy wants to destroy my marriage, destroy mm. my children, destroy my ministry, destroy my thought life, like all the things he's after. I wanted someone to talk about it in a really like easy to understand, don't freak me out kind of way because people either really, typically really embrace the topic and then they find the devil behind every pothole. That's not true. We have potholes because the government doesn't always cover the roads <laughs> or 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 they, or, it snowed. or they don't think the devil is actually even real. Mm-hmm. And if he is real, he doesn't want anything to do with my life um, in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of bring the reality of him into the everyday normal life. And that was the seed of the of the thinking that was that that became eventually throw the first punch. And the subtitle is Defeating the Enemy Hell Bent on Your Destruction, which is quite the subtitle. <laughs> and the whole idea of throwing the first punch, that feels different than other things that we've heard. I've, I feel like we've heard a lot of put on spiritual armor, mm-hmm. but how is this different? Yeah, the actual language around it happened um, about a year ago. I was uh, took a temporary assignment in helping another ministry that was under attack. And I was going into um, rooms where I was leading a meeting, and we weren't getting accomplished. We weren't having the conversations that needed to be happening. And I realized there was this like third party in the room always stirring things up. So one day I walked into the room and said, hey, listen, I have an agenda, but I am not the only one with an Mm -hmm. agenda here. There is an enemy and he has an agenda. And if I was the enemy, what would I want to happen? And then I pulled out a whiteboard and people started brainstorming. I'd want to not trust each other. We'd want to be envious. We'd want to be afraid. We'd want to be so angry, you know, whatever. They listed a bunch of those kinds of activities. And I said, okay, if in the next two hours we see any of that happening, let's work with each other against him instead of against each other inadvertently for him. I don't want to work for the enemy. And I told them, I've read Ephesians 6 about putting my spiritual armor on my whole life. First Peter says there's an enemy and he's like a lion and he's roaring around and he wants to destroy us. But a lot of times in the church, what we end up putting those passages together and we say, there's a lion coming, get your armor on, Mm -hmm. hold on, he's coming. And then I feel in a defensive posture and I'm like, there's only so many ways to rearrange our sin. I mean, we know what he's going to do. He does the same thing over and over again. If I already know what he's going to do, then instead of waiting on defense for him to come get me, let's go punch him first. Let's go take him out. Let's be on a spiritual offensive. And um, there was there was something very galvanizing about that kind of messages in that season for that ministry I was with. And, I, and Todd and I almost immediately began to use that language in our marriage. Mm. 
We wanted to have punch first strategies when we were going to spend time alone or punch first strategies before we confronted an issue with a child. Uh, we began to use that um, with our kids, uh, certainly began to use that in the office. And and I realized there's something kind of sticky about this idea. And that's that's when I said to write about it. I'm sure people are listening and intrigued already about ways in which that we can start. We're like, I don't want to wait for the book. How do I, <laughs> how do I punch first? Is there something in addition to what you just shared about you and Todd just addressing it up front? Is there a practical thing we could do right now to say this is how you would actually start a day by punching first? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's kind of like 101 and 201. Yeah. 101 is the simple question of if I was the enemy, what would I want to have happened today? How would I want to derail Beth if my whole goal – First John says mm. that um, the reason the Son of Man came was to, to destroy the devil's work. Mm. So the question then is what's his work? Well, his work is to hurt God's kids because yeah. um, it hurts God. So if I was the enemy and I wanted to hurt me, one of God's kids, what would I want to have happened today? Just even that being cognizant of mm. that activity around me puts me in a position where I feel – more prepared. That's kind of 101. And we ask that question. I ask that question multiple times throughout the day now. Mm-hmm. 201 is re- is like, okay, I, I think maybe I feel it. I, I sense um, uneasiness. I sense fear. I sense jealousy. I sense envy. I just sense dissent or discouragement, like all the stuff he's up to. Now what do I do? Like now I'm in mm-hmm. the middle of it. Uh, I didn't get ahead of it. Here I am. What do I do? And that... That's kind of part of what the book ends up unpacking and the the guide that comes with it, which is the first Bible study I've ever written. And I wasn't even trying to be that good at it, but I kept telling myself, write something I'd be delighted to stumble upon. But it goes through an acronym that like that acronym is like a little life hack for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the acronym is the word combat. And the C is probably the most important of all the steps. And C is confess your sin, like recognizing right away when I am actually partnering with the enemy by handing him all the bullets he can turn around and shoot me with, with my own sin, and stopping that, mm. that's probably the most effective thing we can do mm. in spiritual warfare. So I'm getting better and better at confessing my sin to myself, to God, to the people that are in the room with me. Um, that throws cold water on the fire the enemy's trying to stoke. You said that part of your writing process is thinking about at the very end, what do I want the reader to take away with throw the first punch? What is the what is your end goal? Yeah, there's a passage in Exodus. It's during the um, – if yeah, I always say I have a Bible crush on Moses, so I spend <laughs> a lot of time on Exodus. And during the plagues, there's a passage where basically Pharaoh goes to the magicians of Egypt and says, could you come up with something as cool as their plagues? Because I want to show our people that we're as powerful as their people. And those magicians come back and say there's more power in the finger of their God than in mm-hmm. our power combined. And if I live that way, like there's more power in the finger of my God than in anything mm-hmm. darkness can throw me, then really I'm as bold as can be. I want people to walk away with spiritual confidence and boldness. There's no room they can't enter into, no hard story they can't go into, no conflict they can't make their way through, no temptation they can't find out of. Like there is literally nothing darkness can do to us that the power God has given us can't get us through. And I think that's that that inheritance we have as God's kids, I want them to be totally aware of. I feel like I want to ask like some some fun questions. Okay. Right? Like um, Since we're talking about fighting and right. spiritual warfare and darkness, <laughs> yeah, just, I feel like we need like, a right we're turn We're just going to punch first and we're just going to claim some uh, some celebration here. Uh, where do you like to write? Where Do you do you have a chair? Do you have a space? Mm. Where do you like to be? That is so funny you ask that. 
I always thought authors like had snowy cabins and like fires and like woods and weekends. And I just don't, I've never had that freedom other than that one weekend I started Reckless Faith again. Um, I, I When I read, I just read through the manuscript um, one more time before it went to print. And I, I can picture that was on a flight to Mexico. Mm. That was in a hotel in mm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. That I typically write when I'm traveling because mm. I don't have family responsibilities at night. Mm-hmm. I don't write during my work day. I write on evenings and weekends. And evenings and weekends are pretty precious when you have a family. So most of my writing happens when I'm out of town or yeah. traveling to go do something. Um, I also write sometimes on my phone. Like if I'm in line somewhere or in a car, um, I'll, I'll write on my phone like an idea that I have or a story or an insider question, and then I'll, I'll go develop it later. That's good. I think that for me, the last word is when, when you are obedient, God does more than one thing at a time. And me being obedient in this particular area of my life blesses me and it blesses other people I don't even – I'll never even light mm-hmm. eyes on. That's not even up to me to count. That's not even up to me to – like God just does – he just – he does a lot with people who are willing. And so the answer to – if any of the listeners are like, oh, I'll never be a writer, who cares? It, this is a metaphor. Like whatever it is that God has asked you to do, do it. And then he'll end up doing more than what you could ever really actually ask or imagine. Well, Beth, thank you for what you've given us today and sharing your story in this moment. But also thank you on behalf of the young woman who's sitting in the audience and sees you up on stage and realizes there's a place for women to tell stories and to speak about God. Thank you on behalf of the man who reads a book written by a woman for the first time and has his worldview opened up in a way that he never anticipated. Thank you on behalf of the women and men who read your books and then are inspired to become biblical detectives themselves and get to plumb the depths of God's word in a way they didn't realize was possible. Thank you for being honest and transparent and open and real with your story so that people who read it feel like they're not alone. Mm And thank you for being willing to put the crown on your head, look at your past, and overcome your own fears so that we can all benefit from your words. My vantage point in life has changed over the years to husband and then father, father of daughters. So when Beth talked about her really just unknowing impact of falling into empowering women and young women especially to recognize uh, that there is a specific voice of leadership I think both through writing and speaking uh, whether it's from a stage or in public forums to a multitude of communities is one that made my heart leap because I see that in my wife and daughters especially of just these opportunities to use a gift and a skill set that it That's right. Someone had to go first. And I'm really grateful that she went first. Yeah, she talked about imagining the young girl in the audience who's looking up and seeing that there is a place on that stage for her too. Yeah. And I I could put myself in that audience. Like I look at Beth and I say, there is a place in leadership for women. There's a place in speaking and teaching and writing for women. And it opens the door for myself, but also for so many others alongside me and behind me. With that too, it impacted Beth 
right? Like we, we don't see Beth get emotional a lot. We're around her, you and I, yeah, quite often. She had an emotional response when she thought about that young woman sitting in the audience too. And I think the list of young woman, women who've been in that audience that are now looking out at audiences too is pretty significant. So I thought that was powerful for this conversation because I think it's a reflective one as we talked with Beth. And one of the other like reflective parts of the conversation was to think back to a high school student who's cheering and part of homecoming and wearing a crown. That crown story really stood out. How did you respond to that as Beth was telling that part of the story? I was so thankful that she was willing to share that because we probably all have our own story from our past that is directly impacting the way we're acting in the present Mm -hmm. without us even realizing it. If I think about my own story, when I was in first and second grade, it was repeatedly written on my report cards to my parents that I was too talkative, that I Mm -hmm. talked too much with my neighbors at the desks around me. And... I think still today there are moments where I hold back and don't use my voice because I see those words written on my first and second grade report cards that say she talks too much. And I think Mm -hmm. in the present moment, nope, you talk too much. Don't say anything when really maybe my voice needs to be heard in the room. But I'm letting first and second grade report cards, just like Beth was letting a careless comment about a crown inform her present and the choices she was making. Yeah, it stood out that someone else's throwaway comment can stick to our own identity and transform the way we walk into other rooms. And and I like totally amen your statement of your voice needs to be heard in the room <laughs> for sure, 100%. And I identify with it in that uh, when I was in high school and still today, I am not a really, really tall human being. Have never been a really tall human being, never stood out. And I had a football coach who put the word little in front of my first name. And I recognized that when I look back in my own journey and where I really saw a transformation of defensiveness, sarcasm, protective strategies, it really came off of being identified as little Hmm. and never being enough in the room. So I was trying to make myself bigger. So years later, I'm sure I walked into meetings or different places and the people around that table had no uh, idea or understanding that that was part of my past. Yet I'm going to walk into a room and try to get bigger in order to tell the story because I'm assuming that the words little Chris are going to be part of that narrative. And going through that healing journey on our own is helpful it's also really helpful to recognize that sometimes we're the ones making the throwaway comment and that can stick to someone else. And that's a really huge takeaway from me. Maybe it even leads into what our last kind of conversation is of how do you throw the first punch? Sometimes it's starting some things and sometimes it's stopping. And that was a really big one for me of one of the ways I could throw the first punch is by choosing words of kindness and empowerment as opposed to protectiveness because I don't want to throw away comment to hit someone else. Yeah, it's not giving the enemy any ammo. And I think that's what all throughout Beth's book, she talks about how the enemy uses the same strategies over and over. Yeah. Like if we know his tactics, if we know his playbook, then we can be on offense rather than defense. One of those things is recognizing that I'm not going to give him words that he can then launch at somebody else. Another thing is recognizing what are my history and my story that he's going to try and use against me. Mm. Things like you're little or too talkative. Those are the ways in which he's going to 
personally attack and we can be on offense. And just as we're going into a new year, thinking about how, or I find myself thinking about how I can ask that phrase that Beth used, what would the enemy want to do? When I walk into a podcast recording, what would the enemy want to do? What would he want to make me believe about me, about other people, about God? When we answer that question, then then we're ready and we can see it and we can call it out. I just think it sets up our whole year differently if we go into this year asking, what would the enemy want to do in this year? Mm. I think as you were projecting on into where we're going next, I think it's important for us to remind everyone it's okay if you don't know the enemy's tactics. Mm-hmm. That's why Beth wrote the book. Yeah, <laughs> And we've gotten a little sneak peek at the contents of it. And it really is a practical guide for you to be able to push away the strategies of an enemy that's trying to divide your relationships, your community, your neighborhood, um, your marriages, and your families. We want you to be able to engage in that. So we're going to have access to resources, to the book release, to some extra fun things that are going to be around this book release because we have a, a special relationship with Beth. All of that's going to be in the show notes. We encourage you on this episode specifically, check out the show notes for free gifts for you. Thank you, Cohatch, for hosting us and for creating this space for great conversations. Mikey, we're entering into another year where you are continuing just to be brilliant as you produce this podcast for us. And audience, thanks for starting another year with us. We look forward to all these episodes and stories that we're going to share with you.